aircraft without flight plans uh, strolling into um, airspace that they're not supposed to be. And the, the sensors are distributed over large spaces and you can't really make sense of the data unless the timestamps are fully aligned. And of course, if somebody wants to do something hostile, the first thing they're going to do is interrupt GPS signals. So we see markets for that in both civil and military. The inroads we've made so far are all, all civil in, in defending um, uh, civil airspace. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Welcome to The Downlink. This week's episode is the second in a two-part look at positioning, navigation, and timing, or PNT. It's about time. No, really, it's about time, but as a service, as a business, you could say my guest, Richard Hoptroff, is a commercial time lord. He's also a serial entrepreneur and inventor. But before we hear from Richard, let's just cover a few of the basics. We get our PNT data from signals received from the Global Positioning System, or the GPS. The United States Space Force operates the GPS because all of the data comes from a military satellite constellation up in Middle Earth orbit. According to GPS.gov, 30 GPS satellites are currently operational. Here's the concern. Last week's guest told us that GPS is not designed to take a hit, let alone shoot back, and it has a bullseye on its back. Ever since Russia tested its anti-satellite weapons system last November, Russians on and off the government payroll have said GPS satellites are A-list targets, not spy satellites. What we also learned was that if we're denied access to the GPS, the U.S. economy, businesses, and people alike would pay the price, at least a billion dollars a day. Why? Because in addition to the apps and services like Pokemon Go and Uber, our national critical infrastructure, such as industrial control systems for chemical plants, energy producers, and manufacturing, they all rely on GPS to locate and synchronize operations, and there's no publicly available backup. In 2018, Congress passed and the then president signed into law the National Timing, Resilience and Security Act. That law requires the Department of Transportation to provide for the establishment, sustainment and operation of a land-based resilient and reliable alternative timing system. That was almost four years ago. And in fact, the current administration's 2023 DOT budget proposal contains a request to repeal that 2018 law. This kind of instability prompted some in the financial sector to seek a reliable remedy, which is where Richard's company, Hoptroff, is one of a few that have seized the business opportunity to step into the breach, providing traceable time as a service. Here's our conversation. Hello, Richard. Welcome to the Downlink. It's great to have you. And it's fantastic to be here with you. It's it's a real privilege to uh, be um, be able to tell you about uh, what we're trying to do and uh, enlighten the uh, Downlink uh, listeners. Thank you. 
I don't have many guests who think as deeply as you do about time. So it would be great if you could introduce yourself and your company, Hoptroff. Sure. So um, I don't know how far back in time you want me to go, but what we do now is we have a business where we actually supply time as a network service. Uh, because basically every every customer we've got, most are in financial services, but some in other places as well, they, they didn't sign up to timekeeping as their day job. You know, it, it is something they have to do, um, but it's a it's a pain in the ass um and they they would really like to to just not think about it so they can get on with what they want to do today so that struck me as an ideal outsourcing opportunity so our philosophy which i believe is unique is that you know we we sell you time we just make sure your clocks are correct uh we can do it to a millionth of a second accuracy uh, we do it terrestrially, so it's over IP networks mostly, although we can use satellites as well, um, and then the last mile over Wi-Fi links and things like that. But really, the contracts we sign commit us to making sure the clock is right, and that's that's all we do. We we just tell people that they can outsource to us, and that's, the, that's their problem gone away, uh, and that's our central philosophy in what we do. Hoptroff is not your first entrepreneurial endeavor. I mean, you have a serious background in optical computing and artificial intelligence. You founded Right Information Systems and then Flexipanel Limited, and both were successes and they were wildly different technologies. Why didn't you continue on with those endeavors? Uh, well, after I um, finished my PhD uh, around 1990 in um, artificial intelligence as a as a very very small branch of physics at the time. Um, <clears throat> I was looking to actually turn it into some kind of business, and I went into business with our current chairman David Holbert, starting a software company. Back when software companies were new things as well as our AI. And we decided to look at uh, business forecasting and modeling. So we applied AI to those things. And it was all about predicting the future. Um, and that could be anything from, you know, what would happen if I changed my price at the top end, you know, for very large businesses making very big decisions to right down at the other end, you know, a sandwich chain, uh, you know, how many sandwiches do I make today kind of thing. Uh, so that was kind of working in the future. Um, we sold that off uh, very nicely. It got to the point where database companies such as Oracle and Cognos were building up a lot and wanted to uh, actually put the icing on the cake, which was actually saying what would happen in the future. So we actually sold that to Cognos and that went well. And after that, I had the space to actually do, do some more academic work. So I went, um, I went and did a postdoc at Oxford actually doing using my optical computing work to date the age of very old buildings so um, I did work in Egypt um, and Jerusalem uh, in particular um, one of the most satisfying things was dating the age of David's uh, city which is in in the south of uh, Jerusalem actually proving that David's city was built at the time that the um, the Bible says that 
that he was there. So I can't prove that it was David that actually built it, but it was built at that time and so on. So, you know, so I went from the business of forecasting the future to actually dating the past, timestamping the past, if you like. And then at that point, I thought I'd better get back into business, but software started to look a little bit uninteresting to me. So I decided to get into hardware. And so the flex panel business did uh, uh, USB and uh, Bluetooth chips. Uh, so basically it was a design company like ARM, advanced risk machines, in the sense that all, all we did was design stuff. And then when we had order, orders come in, we, we just um, got them subcontract manufactured. And that was, that was fun enough. But I started to get interested in uh, watchmaking. And so I started to think, well, I've got these Bluetooth chips. What if I put a Bluetooth chip in a watch and connected it so that it could put in information on the dials that were was more interesting than a normal watch? So I did um, and connected it to the phone. And then we had watches that did things like uh, you could have live sports results coming up on, the wrist, uh, on your wrist. Uh, you could have stock prices and so on. But actually what turned out to be the biggest seller was, was the most accurate watch in the world. So because of the Bluetooth connection, we could actually calibrate things really, really well. So at the time, Seiko had a watch that was accurate to one second, sorry, three seconds every year. So I set myself the challenge of making a watch that was accurate to better than one second a year. And we could do that. And we did achieve that. But the problem was I need a really, really accurate time source in order to do that. So I started looking around for atomic clocks and I uh, couldn't find any on eBay or anything like that. You don't really find them on eBay. So I... Um, I, I searched around a little more and it turned out one of the suppliers to the US Department of Defense made these things called chip scale atomic clocks. Um, so I said, well, can I buy some of these? And to my surprise, they said yes. And so I then started using these to calibrate the quartz watches I had. And it wasn't for about three months uh, until it crossed my mind to actually put those, uh, those atomic units, they're matchbox sized, actually in a timepiece. Uh, so we then went on to produce the first uh, atomic uh, timepieces and they're accurate to one second every thousand years. Um, so, you know, uh, if you think about it in, in the history of timekeeping, there's been a version folio, there's been a pendulum, there's been a balance spring, there's been quartz. And then I've done number five, which is atomic. So that's, if I get known for anything, it's gonna be that. So that was doing fine, although I have to say business to consumer is not really my thing. Uh, so I was operating this business in uh, central London and um, I started getting questions from some of my friends who work in financial services saying, well, we've got these MIFID II regulations coming up. Um, we need to timestamp transactions to, you know, within a millionth of a second. Can you help us here? You seem to know what you're doing. So we pivoted the business um, to actually uh, supply time to financial services. That was, the, that was the initial plan. And I thought I was going to be supplying time or rather supplying clocks uh, to, to banks. But as it turned out, 
the way the financial services are structured, particularly the high frequency trading and so on, they need to be close to each individual exchange. So they um, they like to put a, a relatively small number of servers in a lot of different locations. So it was going to be very impractical to, to get them to put in a load of clocks everywhere. So that was what led us, frankly, rather, rather more kicking and screaming rather than innovative step um, to, to actually developing a network service and working out how to deliver time over long distance over IP. But it turns out that that was, I, I, can't, I can't claim benefit for it because as I say, it was kicking and screaming. I didn't really want to do it, but um, it turns out to have been a very, very smart move. Not only does that mean we can distribute time very economically to high accuracy, uh, but it also turns out that because we don't use the satellites, there's the avoidance of all risk of um, interference um, from satellites or solar weather or anything like that. So I'm going to jump in here for a second, okay. just because you said kicking and screaming. <laughs> well, like, well, then how did you get convinced? I mean, you're, you know, an independent human being who happens to be a scary, smart human being, make decisions on your own. You're an adult, obviously. So, all right, explain to me, how, how did how did you get, you know, kicking and screaming to do this? I mean, did somebody convince you? Were you taken to a coffee and read the riot act? I mean, how, how did that happen? <laughs> well, kicking and screaming because everybody told me it was impossible. And eventually I was looking at the business and I thought, this is not going to work unless I try and work this out. Uh, and we did. And a lot of the secret source, well, there's two bits of the secret source. One is working very closely with our data providers, our telecoms companies, to make sure that the routes that we have, we've got a lot of control over. Uh, the second part of it is the design of our software, uh, because it's specifically designed to, um, to synchronize to signals which have traveled a long distance. So those are the two areas uh, where I kicked and screamed, if you like. Um, so it, it, it was really that everybody told me it was impossible. And finally, I realized, well, I'm going to have to roll up my sleeves here and actually make it possible. So back to back to, you know, feeling that that niche with the financial services, you know, how did that actually work? Because you were saying that these things are coming through, well, data pipes, let's just, you know, use that kind of plumbing term and syncing up in a way also with GPS or GNSS. I mean, how, how does that all come together and work? Uh, well, it's not that much different from when you throw a light switch and the light comes on. You don't really think about what it took upstream to make that happen, you know, with all the power lines and the power stations, the substations and so on. Uh, so what we have is a global network of timing hubs, uh, two in uh, New York, two in London, one in Tokyo, and one we're just fitting out in Sydney. And we're planning to build out as well. I suspect we'll have Chicago by the end of Q3. Uh, so we can distribute time locally. It then goes out over uh, mostly IP private IP networks. Um, where we get our time from is uh, some satellite sources, but also because we need resilience against loss of satellite sources, 
we have a connection with NIST in uh, Boulder, Colorado, and that's entirely terrestrial. As far as I know, we're the only people who have an entirely terrestrial connection to them, apart from the US National Observatory, or Naval Observatory, sorry. And in the UK, we've got uh, NPL from London and RISE from Sweden. You know, you and I have both read and written about the billions and billions of dollars or pounds of estimated damage to the US and UK economies if we were to lose access to GNSS or GPS signals. And because you have this network and you obviously have customers, who are your customers? Uh, most of our customers are in financial services because that's where we uh, develop the, the, the business. Uh, but the new markets we're looking at now, um, one of the most interesting ones is defence, and not necessarily uh, military, but also civil defence as well. So we're working with a company called Operational Solutions uh, to make sure that airspace is protected, particularly against, um, let me use the phrase correctly, um, aircraft without flight plans uh, strolling into um, airspace that they're not supposed to be. And the, the sensors are distributed over large spaces, and you can't really make sense of the data unless the timestamps are fully aligned. And of course, if somebody wants to do something hostile, the first thing they're going to do is interrupt GPS signals. So we see markets for that in both civil and military. The inroads we've made so far are all, all civil in, in defending um, uh, civil airspace. Uh, another area is uh, broadcast and telecommunications, um, simply because they want to move very much towards, well, move away from the traditional technologies such as serial di digital interface and move towards um, producing everything in the cloud, you know, so that instead of having a, a big recording studio, you, you can just, you know, sit in your bedroom and, and do it do it on your laptop kind of thing and that is that creates massive i do mean massive uh, cost savings uh but because ip is asynchronous each point in the chain needs to be uh synchronized and, and have proper timestamps in it um then another area we're looking at is uh power distribution because that's changed dramatically uh 20 years ago uh, there were what you know maybe a hundred power stations in in the UK, and now there's probably when you take into account everybody who's got solar panels on their roofs uh, contributing to the grid, you know there's probably a hundred thousand, you know, um, and all of that synchronisation needs to happen, and um, you know that has consequences if you don't get it right, you know, because it um, it does you know machinery does blow up if you if you don't get your synchronisation on that, and then uh, the last area. Well, there's lots of areas, but the last area that I'm currently focused on is Internet of Things, because Internet of Things is mostly about gathering data, uh, some of it making changes, you know, switching the light on or off, but most of it is gathering data, and most of it gathering data so that you can send somebody a bill. And all of those devices don't really know when they did what they did, unless they have some access to time. And that is a massive scale thing. Uh, if we think about uh, by 2030, there would be 100 billion computing devices, microcontrollers, microprocessors that had real-time clocks in them. Yeah, that's 100 billion. So I, I think, well, why, why are we just 
setting an assignment of a few high value devices. Why, why can't we work out how to make this massively scalable? Let's synchronize every one of those 100 billion devices. And that's, that's where I think this business is going. And that's where, what I want to achieve. And really up until, well, I wouldn't say up until now, because there are other systems that are out there that are also, you know, starting or, or, you know, one has to do with magnetism. But the thing is, is that a lot of the devices that we have today, our navigation, our ships at sea, our planes in the air, et cetera, et cetera, are really reliant on the signals from GPS to get to where they need to go or to perform the task that, need to be, that needs to be performed. Or you were talking about, you know, uh, power generation and the electrical grid so much of that is plugged into gps to give it time so things work when they're supposed to work one kind of wonders considering that that russia did threaten to you know take out gps you know what is our backup what 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 are we doing has anyone on on a national scale like reached out to you is what is the uk doing to back up its time well there's in the us there is the um the executive order 13905 which says which is basically it says you really need to find some kind of solution uh for position navigation and time um in the uk it's not a directive but what what has happened is the government has funded a, a spin-off of NPL called the National Timing Centre, and we're working very closely with them to actually be the downstream distributors of that time. Now, what, what I would like to do medium term is actually start moving into more, more of the position uh, nature of things. There are some interesting uh, technologies out there. We're talking with a number of vendors on additional technologies to back up GPS, most of them based on um, other wireless transmissions, which are much stronger than GPS, uh, land-based ones. Because uh, a lot of the position problems are, are at sea, where our existing solution, you know, <laughs> having a wide interconnect, uh, wide internet connection is not going to work. So... Um, oh, we, what, can't you just roll out a cable and hook it up? <laughs> I'll talk to Cable and Wireless about that, but uh, <laughs> yeah, so um, so I, I, I do see scope in that market. Um, certainly in the US and the UK, there is keen awareness of the vulnerability, and we are part of the, the effort to actually address that. Well, I mean, the, the damage, obviously, if we lost GPS or GNSS signals, you know, would go beyond the economic sector. Uh, you recently entered into a partnership with Arolia, and that's a company that has won a number of contracts. In fact, uh, as recently as I think two days ago, another contract with the Department of Defense. You know, broadly speaking, what will be your work with Arolia? Uh, the way we work with Arolia is we, um, we supply time to them. So they provide the time keeping equipment. And then what we do is we provide a a terrestrial time feed, which acts mostly as a secondary. Uh, so it, it's there firstly to uh, monitor the primary feed, which would be GPS or something like that, and uh, raise alerts if uh, anything is wrong with that, uh, and also provide records that uh, the timekeeping was correct. Um, and then secondarily, if there was any problem with GPS, then we would, we would uh, fall in as the backup supply. 
So let me ask you this. What's the future? Are you going to stick with time or is there some other invention inside your head that you're going to develop and change the world with? Uh, Well, it's two things, I think. Uh, The first is, as I mentioned before, um, a lot of what we do um, can be applied to position as well. Uh, And in particular, what I want to do is set up a network of cloud-based software boundary clocks, as we call them. So uh, we don't just send time from one place. We actually send time from multiple multiple cloud locations, you know, AWS, Azure, Google Cloud, whatever. And by measuring the latencies, you can get a rough idea of where something is. Uh, You know, not not good enough for an Uber driver, but it's good enough for... um, you know, if you if you're running a media company with a license to distribute time, sorry, distribute content in the United States, and somebody is obviously in Canada, we can identify that. Or uh, you know, if you're running a, a gambling website in one particular U.S. state, the law is that you can't offer bids to anybody outside the state. So we can do that kind of um, geolocation. Uh, And then the second area that we want to build up on is actually adding value to the data because we've learned so much about that. So now that we've got such high quality timestamp data, actually looking at um, analyzing latencies, uh, looking at those signatures uh, for many, many reasons, trying to identify a counterparty or working out if something's wrong. I think anomaly analysis is probably the, the best one. You know, is you know, is this unusual behavior? Therefore, should I do I need to investigate it and look into it more? Um, that kind of thing. So sort of like going one layer up now and and actually uh, providing analysis solutions for customers. Richard, thank you so much for your time. This was fascinating. It's been uh, wonderful to uh, be able to explain it to you. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening. 